On this episode, we have Tony Blower to talk about fear and how to use it as a motivator and as a force for your own protection and how to improve through fear. Stay with us. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. So 133, I need somebody that's got a visual on where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. 43, where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. Copy running eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. Probably we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Hello everyone and welcome to The Squad Room Podcast, where we learn how to serve, strive, and succeed in our challenging career. My name is Garrett Teslan. I'm an active duty sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California, And I am on a mission to build a world where first responders wake up inspired, feel confident at work, and go home safe knowing they've spent their time in a worthy cause. We have a great episode today, but before we get to our guest, I want to remind you that you can support the show and rock some cool gear by visiting our apparel line at aworthycauselife.com. Please check it out at aworthycauselife.com or on Instagram at aworthycauselife or on Facebook. A couple other ways to stay connected with the podcast and to make sure that you're getting as much value out of these episodes as possible. First is to join our Facebook page and like that, and then join our Facebook group of active and aspiring law enforcement professionals. Just search the squad room group on Facebook to join. And of course, follow me on Instagram at the squad room. All right. My guest today is Tony Blower. Tony is the founder of Blower Tactical and the Spear System of Self-Defense, a world-renowned self-defense expert and law enforcement trainer. Tony has studied fear and how our bodies use fear to keep us safe. In this episode, Tony and I cover a wide variety and a wide range of topics, including how to be the best version of yourself and why you need self-awareness to do that, how to make good decisions and how to manage fear, how fear can become fuel for growth, and how we often outsource our own safety in ways that aren't so obvious. It's a really uh, great episode with Tony and follow him at Tony Blauer, B-L-A-U-E-R, and you can learn more at blowerspear.com or nofearnow.com. That's K-N-O-W, fearnow.com. Before we get to Tony, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode. This current pandemic that we're in has obviously changed the game on how we manage our fitness and health. With gyms across the world shutting their doors and just now barely starting to reopen and good fresh produce in short supply, we really need to take ownership of our routines when it comes to our fitness. A lot of you have been left scrambling to replace your gym routine with something you can do at home. Others of you might have a gym that's finally opened again, but you're looking for something more structured that you can uh, get yourself set up for success. This episode is sponsored by Hard to Kill Fitness, and I think they have a solution to the problem that is often staring us at the whiteboard or in our notebooks when we're sitting on the bench wondering what to do. Hard to Kill is run by a team of military veterans and active duty police officers who offer simple, yet highly effective and proven functional training workouts that you can do at home or in the gym. Their routines focus on basic equipment and fundamental movements so that you have to learn how to, so that you don't have to learn how to do Olympic lifts or complex movements to participate. 
Hard to Kill Fitness develops workouts specifically for the demands of military and first responder communities, and their goal is to prepare you physically and mentally for the challenges we all face in the streets. Each workout comes as a PDF and includes detailed descriptions of the movements in each workout, tips on the mindset it requires, and a progressive path that builds on the previous work you've put in. You also get access to the private Facebook group, and you can interact with the coaches there by email or by Instagram. Check them out at hardtokillfitness.co or on Instagram at hardtokill underscore fitness. All right, now here we are with Tony Blauer. Tony Blauer, welcome back to the squad room. Nice to have you back, man. Thank you for being here. I am excited to be back on here and uh, and share with you guys and, and your your audience anything I can uh, you know to help. It's a it's a, it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time for the entire world. It is absolutely, and it's and a lot's happened. You know, your last episode, episode fifty seven, that was back in March of twenty seventeen. You're uh, that so you're like an OG member of of the squad <laughs> family there, uh, and. Uh, that was, you know, a long time ago now. A lot of a lot has changed for a lot of people, in, especially in the last, since the beginning of the year. You know, we'll just round it out to 2020 and just say that this has been a year of a lot of change for a lot of people. And I wanted to have you specifically back on to talk about um, fear and your concept of no fear. And not the N-O fear of the t-shirts, but the no, like knowledge fear, K-N-O-W, no fear. And I just want to have a discussion about fear and i thought well there's no better guy to have on right so a lot's happened and i wanted to get your your take on it you interact with law enforcement officers all around the world tier one operators uh, professional athletes high-end functioning individuals what are you seeing right now in the world what are people coming to you with their fears well, it's it's interesting. Uh, let me sidestep that for a second sure. to say that mo- that most people actually, even these high functioning tier one type A's, they don't like to use the word fear. Uh, and and I made a joke recently in a post that like you know fear fear needs a makeover and fear needs a um, a new ma- a new management team because people are afraid to use the word fear. Okay. And uh, and it's. Um, uh, when you think about it, you know, I have, I, I mean, tell the story, I probably told this in the, in the first podcast, but I'll, I'll, I'll share it right now. Maybe I'm sure you got a bunch of new listeners mm-hmm. and it's a worthwhile story because it sets up kind of the framework for how I go about discussing the psychology of fear, not the physiology or biology. When most people in an, a more academic professional setting talk about fear, People immediately start thinking about the fight or flight syndrome, fight, flight, freeze, and they start, you know, quoting people and thinking about stuff. But the reality is that doesn't interest me in the context of human performance, particularly when it relates to sudden violence. During a sudden violent attack, which a first responder, a cop, military, uh, even just a citizen um, has to deal with, I make this joke, you know, in, you know, you're the first responder in your fight. You do not have time to dial 911 in a fight. Even if you're situationally aware, uh, situationally, uh, uh, compromised because you had no awareness because you were looking at your phone and the attack happens, you still don't even have time to dial 911. Right. And so I'm making a joke about, about awareness there. Hopefully everyone got that. <laughs> if, it, if it, if it transfers over, uh, over audio, but the idea here is a lot of us outsource our safety, uh, 
uh, to quote Jack Donovan, who who, who uh, wrote uh, "Violence Is Golden," he had me on his show years ago, and I was explaining to him how we've all become domesticated. Um, that we think, you know, the cavalry is going to rush in, and and uh, even cops, some of them have that unconscious thought of like, well, I got backup. I don't need to train as much. You know, no, I, I, I go to the range once a year and I requalify. You realize like I, I was on a, sh- on a on a talk a day or two ago and I and I said, you know, the average cop today has been in zero real street fights before they became a cop. Right? That makes sense to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and And the guy that they're going to try to handcuff who's going to fight has been fighting in the street since he or she is seven years old or five years old or six years old. Yep. And, and and so you grab this 16-year-old juvenile or a 21-year-old or 20, and they've already had like 500 street fights and they have zero respect for damaging another person, right? And it's not so much, and, and the mistake we make, and I'm off down some crazy rabbit hole, so pull me out at some point. Um, the the, uh, the mistake that I see you know, I turned 60 on May 2nd, just uh, uh, last week. And I've been studying violence, fear, and aggression for 40 years. And I have been, as you said in the, in the intro, I've done I've done stuff, I do stuff with tier one units, organizations, um, uh, government agencies, uh, law enforcement, health services, all these. And... The biggest mistake that I see everyone's still making, and I've been saying this since the 80s, man, is there's too much emphasis placed on technical proficiency. And I always caution people, don't confuse technical with tactical. Don't confuse technical with tactical. While you're trying to figure out what, where your finger should go on the gun and, and what your breathing ritual should be and where your elbow should be. And are you doing isosceles, weaver, point, instinct shooting, car, uh, you know, who do, the bad guy's already changing his magazine. And, and, and we know statistically that bad guys are more accurate in gunfights than good guys, right? Yep, and, 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 and the thing when you think about that, is the bad guys don't go to gun site and 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 the old Blackwater site or wherever wherever you go to you know you go to learn to shoot, they're just they're shooting because they're asocial predators and they're just pointing their gun at the bad guy. And so, what I looked at when I was studying in the '80s, we were doing before Fight Club, we were doing these force on force scenarios, and it was kind of like this underground legendary thing. In, I used to live in Montreal, Canada, and now I'm a proud U.S. citizen. But uh, we used to get together once a month, put on hockey gauntlets, hockey headgear. I had, there was no high gear. Um, I had yet to develop it yet. A taekwondo chest guard, baseball shin guards. And we would do these scenarios where we would, on VHS, videotape, um, kick the crap out of each other and... Um, videotape the stuff, but we always did it in the context of a scenario. It wasn't like just stand up and spar and see, you know, a battle of attrition. It was, uh, it was, you know, hey, go stand over there, pretend you're at a bar, guy bumps into you. There had to be at least like a minute of dialogue. I Even back in the 80s, I said, this has to be moral, ethical, and legal, whatever we do. 
because you'd have guys in the beginning misunderstand the rules of engagement and someone will come up and go, hey, man, give me your boom. And they just sucker punch the guy like and I go, well, stop. What do you mean? Well, he was he was going to mug me. I go, but you don't know that yet. In real life, you don't know that you got a bad feeling. You need to threat discriminate, go through the motions. What I was in and this is just intuition. Uh, but what I was doing, I was I was trying to figure out a way to reverse engineer real encounters from a behavioral perspective and then evaluate what people are doing. And I noticed a couple of things, which will bring me to a story I forgot to finish talking about and remind me about my Fort Bragg skydiving story. And um, uh, but I did this for 13 years from 1980 until 1993 when I closed my school and began just doing seminars abroad and, and working almost exclusively with law enforcement and then military. But I noticed this for decades, two things. One is if people were really doing the scenario properly, that when the attack happened, we called it the Jack in the box moment. When the attack happened, everybody flinched no matter what their background was. And we would have, street fighter, we'd have a Taekwondo guy, a judo player, there was no official MMA, but people who just, you know, blended stuff. I, I blended stuff in the in the 80s. We didn't call it mixed martial art. I was a wrestler, I did Taekwondo and I loved boxing and I was into Wing Chun. All my students learned all that blend of it and we would, you know, we'd flow through ranges. Uh, in fact, 1986, this is, so the UFC hit in 1993, in 1986 I released a video um, where where we talked about the seven ranges of my system and but if you looked at that we were talking about a verbal range we were talking about the psychological range do you understand how to control your emotions all of this stuff i mean this is how deep brain-based we were uh uh back then but i noticed this if somebody like in an acting class like you're actually doing a scenario you're 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 trying to be a good bad guy you're trying to be a good good guy Everybody flinched. And then they, and then after weathering the ambush, they would then default to the system they had practiced the most. For example, if I was, if I was a boxer at heart, I want to use my hands, but you know, the scenario might've been go stand over there and uh, you're waiting for a bus stop. Two guys come up to you and, and they're going to just harass you because they don't recognize you. That's all I would tell people. And I would tell the role players, you're the designated hitter. I would in another room or off to the side, I would say, okay, Joe, you're going to shove him and go, dude, what are you doing around here? You know, you don't look like you're from around here. What's the matter? What'd you say? And, and, and Bob, you're going to do a telegraphic sucker punch. Like we would never blindside people. We wanted to give them always the pre-contact cues, but we would try to always suck them into uh, a dialogue so that they weren't standing there jumping up and down in their stance. So, right. So the boxer's just standing there when that sucker punch would come, there'd be a micro flinch where his hands would come up to cover his head. And that would turn into a clinch into a bob and weave. And then the guy would start trying to hit the guy with body shots or uppercuts or whatever. The Taekwondo guy would flinch the same way, but push away to try and create space to throw a round kick or a side kick. Right. The wrestler would flinch. And he would continue going low, try and body lock the guy and get on his ground, you know, get him to the ground. And so everybody, and this is such a magic moment because it gave birth to the spear system, spontaneous protection 
enabling accelerated response, right? How do we weaponize the startle flinch? How do we look at all humans, regardless of gender, regardless of experience, as human weapons? And what do they bring to to survivability? And I looked at it, I said, wow, if this is uniform across the human species, which it is, then that means that anybody, regardless of gender, size, or background experience, can be can be made safer by looking at how behavior trumps theory and how uh, genetic wiring, aka the start of flinch response, hijacks complex motor skill, executive function during a high stress moment. Now, if that makes sense, if you're tracking that everybody, what that means, if a stimulus is introduced too quickly, your theoretical system, where if I said to you, what would you do in an ATM? What would you do if a guy grabbed your gun? What would you do if two guys triangulated on you here? Your brain, when you're not in that violent encounter, goes, well, I would step here, I'd go to two o'clock, I would blade, I would do that. But then when we watch CCTV, body cam, helmet cam, dashboard video, all the, you don't see people executing on all the theoretical stuff that they were taught in their academies. Right. In fact, you know this, I'm sure. Um, Caliber Press did a very expensive, uh, or was it Caliber or Force Science? Force Science did a very expensive multi-year evaluation on Canada, UK, and the USA, and concluded that that the current level of training doesn't prepare officers for the violence they're going to face in the street. It was a multi-part article, two or three part. Well, like I've been saying that for free since 1985, like, <laughs> right? And and I'm not trying to be a smart ass. I'm like going like, you don't need to do a study. You just need to look at film of most officers and the current confusion of how to deal with with all stuff, which ties us back to my second observation and the theme of the show and your first question. So I noticed everybody flinched. I thought about that. I started isolating it. I started researching it and I created, uh, you know, uh, what's considered to be the first behaviorally based personal defense program in the world. And that because it's personal defense doesn't mean it's not defensive tactics or combatives because inside of every combatives program is a person, right? And inside every DT uh, program is a person. And why this stuff only works sometimes during real violence is because of this second observation that I discovered. Again, this is the serendipity of, of, of these scenarios. Everybody who managed their fear managed to fight. That was my second observation. I'll say that again. Everyone who managed their fear managed to fight. And what that means is I had people in here signing up, male and female. Some heard about it and then they came in and they were like, I want to do that. And some heard about it and they came in with something to prove, a chip on the shoulder. They wanted to test themselves. And we would really be hitting each other, right? We're dressed in makeshift like Frankenstein gear. That also, you know, gave birth to high gear because this got so popular that it was like I was sitting there one day going like, we need to have our own gear. This is like, like putting this like duct tape gear on isn't, isn't sustainable. <laughs> but going back to the fear thing, which is actually the most important discovery I made in the eighties was, was that there'd be like a guy who you could tell he's got a couple of broken noses and he's like, uh, you know, fancies himself a street fighter, works at a bar, he's a doorman, you know, yeah, I've been in a bunch of fights, no, 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 no. And he's like, like going, you know, okay, who wants to go next? Who wants to be attacked? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll be attacked. You know, and he'd, he'd walk over and he's like that. And then like I would take one or two or three role players and I would set it up and never, we're never trying to make someone look bad. We're always giving them uh, 
verbal options, the time and the space to position themselves better. And then it's and then suddenly it's the jack in the box moment. And when just so you know, when I say jack in the box, you know the jack in the box, right? You go da 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 da. You know the clown's there. You know it's going to pop. You just don't know when it's going to happen. So I would always tease people with that. I would say, listen, you got the clown music here. You know there's going to be a fight. You don't know when it's going to happen. And it was actually that that became the inspiration for our our original thesis statement. Uh, you know that the, you know uh, when it's, uh, part of the bigger thesis statement was with regard to spear system. When a stimulus is introduced too quickly, we flinch. And then it was to look at does that start a flinch have a protective or a tactical application that can enhance our safety? If it does, why aren't we using it? That became years later that when we flinch to cover our head and push away danger, that became metaphorically the equivalent of a car's airbag. That, that the start of flinch bypassed cognition because in a holy shit dangerous moment, your executive function is hijacked by the reptilian brain. And you see this all over the world, regardless of training. Tier one, no training. And that ties me back to such a fascinating uh, um, kind of, like when I, when I look at this stuff, man, I look at myself not as the archaeologist that uncovered it, but I still look at it almost like from 30,000 foot view going, holy shit, look how cool this is. And I still, to this day when I teach, I'm like, well, like it's, it's, like, it's like this podcast. I can't shut up about it. It's, I'm so fucking excited. Why? Because this, if people understood this, they just get safer. They get safer immediately when they realize, so I've got this like hardwired genetic response that's the equivalent of a, of a modern airbag and it's, it's, it'll deploy when my actual awareness is compromised. And, and if I learn about it, I can prime it so that I'm safer. So now this will happen to anybody. But now if you're a police officer and you step inside the reactionary gap and, and you're aware that this individual in front of you might try to kill you or maim you to facilitate their escape, there are better ways to stand, better places to have your hand, better things to think about. So you're actually, you know, like in most cars, uh, um, there's a little button that to turn on or off the passenger airbag, mm -hmm. right? It's like it's like that. It's like you don't ever want your airbag turned off. Our our personal airbag, the startle flinch, only deploys when our conscious awareness is compromised. Nobody walks around the house flinching, going, oh, 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 right? Like, like oh, what, what are you doing? What's, what's the matter with you, Dad? Nothing. I'm just flinching by accident. Nobody flinches by accident. We flinch because we perceive a threat. So how does this tie to fear? In all of these seminars, these, you know, like pre-fight club, like force-on-force -force scenarios, I see like the, the guy, the, like the tough guy who goes, yeah, I'll go first. You know, he gets up there and, and and he would crumble. He was used to sucker punching people. He was used to being the doorman going, that guy's drunk. I'll wait if he's, oh, now he's really drunk. And now he's become a problem. And now I've been watching him for a half an hour. I'm going to do this to him. Like, yeah, it could take some balls and courage to be a good doorman in security. But that being the sniper is not the same thing as, as stepping into the kill zone and emerging victorious. And that was the essence of our whole system. And a lot of people misunderstood that 
and and looked at at me as like you know what's he saying our system doesn't work because i would tell people be careful you practice you might get really good at the wrong thing and what i was actually talking i was always what i was talking about there was neuroscience that that there's no such thing as muscle memory in the real world but your neurotransmitters are getting myelinated every time you do a rep and that becomes this neural pathway for you to do something so this is what i spoke about this is big fancy speak for you know the boxer would flinch and then try to box. The Taekwondo guy would flinch and then he'd try to kick. The grappler would flinch and then he'd try and do a takedown. Everyone had created a neural preference, you know, that we mistakenly call muscle memory. But the biggest and most important observation was this. The tough guy that I said, hey, what do you, you know, what do you think? How do you think this guy's gonna do? Well, look at him, he's a doorman. He's like, got a, you know, he's, he's jacked. You know, look, he's got scars on his face from fights. Well, some of those guys did really well, but a lot of them uh, kind of like folded under the pressure, flinched like everyone else, but then continued to turn their back while they were swarmed, got knocked to the ground. And we would simulate, you know, you'd get the shit kicked out of you for a few seconds, and then we would jump in and, and stop the fight. Um, none of it was choreographed, right? Except for the first 10 seconds where I'd say, this is who you are, this is who they are. And I'd give people roles and places so that they couldn't, it would, it would make it really hard for their ego or their martial art to manifest itself right away and save the day. The biggest thing here, I know this is a long story, but it's an important story, is there'd be some little guy or some female that fought like a Tasmanian devil that you'd think, you know, and all of a sudden she's like jumping on someone and clawing at their masks and pulling their headgear and 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 literally seeing the role players flinching for real, like like get her off me, you know, like. And I said, "What is that?" And it took me a couple of years to put this together. This turned into my cerebral self-defense mental edge program that evolved into and included the cycle of behavior, which is our whole fear loop protocol. And that eventually evolved into the whole no fear program, KNOW. How do we get to no fear? Uh, and, and you get to no fear by deciding what area of your life you need more courage in, right? Is it, is it this, uh, I heard recently, like heroic courage, right? Where, oh shit, I got to run into a burning building. I got to go save the day. I got I to gotta be a courageous bystander. Is it moral courage? You see shit that's wrong and it's like easier to avoid it, but I got to say something. I got to put my hand up right there. So there's different types of courage. But one of the most exciting things about my work, here we are like decades later, is I was in an interview recently and, and I'd never said this before, but it was such a, it was such a gratifying moment when I, when I, it came out and I realized you can't be brave if you're not afraid. You cannot be brave if you're not afraid. And it was so powerful. I, I actually said it. There's a very famous uh, uh, sports psychologist named Michael Gervais who invited me on his podcast called uh, Finding Mastery. And this guy, like, works with the Red Bull athletes and, and you know, pro sports teams. And it was, uh, yeah. It was, yeah, it was such an honor to be on his show. But we're sitting there. We're just having this great talk. And I'm talking about this. And I said, you, you know, anyone who's, courageous was scared before that because if you're not scared then what you're about to do requires zero courage right if you have a death wish you know jumping out of an airplane 
to go skydiving isn't a big deal to you. If you're afraid of heights and you do your box breathing and you visualize what you need to do and you jump in the airplane, that takes courage because you're scared of heights, right? And so it's the same thing. If I don't want to die and I move towards the danger as a cop, as a firefighter, as, as, as a, uh, someone in the military, that's what real bravery is. And so as our program expanded to corporate work and consulting, and we're doing a lot of stuff now, starting to get hip, hit up by uh, um, health services, emergency services, because, you know, the door kickers are outliers in many, in many ways, right? They're, you know, they're the people who like, are like, let's do this, right? Where, you know, like a nurse or doctor on the front line right now who are our tier one operators for COVID-19, right? You know, like I, I talk about this, this current phase we're in is like, this is our medical 9-11. Mm-hmm. And it should have zero politics. But in 9-11, we kind of knew it, who the bad guys were. And then the good guys were our direct action operators. Here, um, while there's possibly a bunch of human bad guys, the actual the actual danger here is a virus you can't even see, you know. And so who are our heroes and who are the, are the operators? It's doctors and scientists and healthcare and all, all of that. But anyways, but but what this observation in the 80s, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting is how important our, our programs are now. I just I just had a, a call with a fire department um, and I think it was their chief or their assistant chief had started to develop this anxiety. You know, he'd been on, he's been on the job for 20 years or whatever. And he's like, I'm having trouble sleeping now. And he had, he, he somehow he had heard about our stuff. He started reading about our fear management stuff. He bought my no fear program. We put a uh, 97 minute, uh, presentation out online several years ago, way before this called No Fear, Kenner W, and it's 97 minutes. My Because my normal workshop's a day long. It's Socratic. There's exercises. We talk. But I said, you know, a lot of people can't get to it, so geography or finances prevents them from getting the course. He calls me up, and he says, he says, I did your No Fear thing, and I slept like a baby that night. It reframed my relationship with fear. And then he asked me, he said, would you talk to my my crew, my team at the fire department? And they're all like type A, let's go, let's like, who go? Who goes, oh, there's a burning building and I'll run into that and save people. You know, like police officers, firefighters, emergency service, it's a special type of mindset to be attracted to that job and then do stuff that's that dangerous and that risky. So I ended up doing a, a, a call with his group uh, and, and I, and, and I want to just, I'm just trying to, frame this in a way they weren't afraid to do their job but there was this malaise this kind of like am i getting contaminated am i bringing it home i'm giving it to my kids am i giving it to my wife or my husband um you know how many exposures to this so like just little you know you'd start this movie playing in your mind that would distract you and so the two things we're talking about like 10 different things right now but if we jump ahead from the 80s to now that observation I made that the people who manage their fear managed to fight, that became consistent whether we were fighting for our self-worth or identity. I'm fighting for uh, like 
just I want to, I want to be a better version of myself. Oh, everyone's locked down. I now need to be a leader in my family. I need my husband or wife to see that I got my shit together or my kids. Oh, you're you're uh, you're at work now. You need your partner to know that they can lean on you, right? You need your team. And so, like, what is leadership? And there's there's so much information out there about what leadership is, but very few people talk about self-awareness and managing personal fear. You don't think that every leader who comes out and goes, okay, we got this, well, let's go, that like five minutes before his and justice for all speech and we got this and who yeah, was in his office going, man, I, I hope they fucking believe this because I'm scared shitless right now. Because there's so much uncertainty right now, right? Right. We don't, you know. So um, I think that the, I'll shut up for a moment because I, I haven't taken a breath in like 20 minutes. But the, uh, um, I think that one of the most important skills that has not yet been realized is our ability to connect self-awareness, fear management, and critical thinking. That if you need to solve a problem, you also can't be the problem. And if you don't have the self-awareness to go, holy shit, I'm in the fear loop right now, I'm now making emotional reactive decisions, you can't make critical decisions while you're in your own internal quicksand, right? Sure. Going, yeah. I hope this works, I hope this works. And, uh, you know, in interviewing victims of violence over 40 years, uh, there were there were two definitive connections between the people that fought and the people that didn't. And it was very simple. The people who managed their fear managed to fight. And it wasn't some cool move. It wasn't like, yeah, I knew he was trying to kill me, so I, I did a, a, a flying arm bar. Oh, I knew that guy was trying to get my gun, so I did a spinning hook kick. Oh, yeah, that guy was trying to kill me, so you know I, I tie kicked him in the peroneal nerve. Nobody's thinking that like that. To launch the kick or to retain your weapon or to transition and, and get back in the fight is a moment when you go, holy shit, here we go. And now you're good with it. Where you so so we just tell people if you you need to change your relationship with fear. When you change your relationship with fear, you change what happens next. You know, I think um, a lot of like the first responders, especially, totally get the idea of courage, the physical courage it takes, like you say, to run into a building or to confront a a, a car of unknown subjects at three in the morning, that sort of stuff. What I think a lot of us struggle with is that other kind of courage you mentioned. The either the moral courage or the courage to just become self-aware. Uh, do you do any of your teachings on those areas and how can we, how can we yeah. develop some of that courage? Cause I think that's the one, like we get trained in some of this other stuff, you know, fear inoculation or stress inoculation. Those things are always presented to us, but I don't think anyone's ever gone to an in-service training where they talk about, here's how to dive deep into your fears about your self-awareness and your, and your, mindset <laughs> so share with us on yeah. that if you would yeah it, it's you know it, it sounds touchy-feely and and foo-foo and woo-woo and all foo -foo. that but <laughs> yeah but at the but at the end of the day here's the thing is like like i know some guys have been in gunfights and and been in death matches and and didn't die and they're you know and they're like the badass and 
and they're they've got fear about stuff. I, I tell this story all the time. I'm not going to mention the, the 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 team and the location, but I was working with like a full time SWAT team. We finished the block. I go, anyone got any questions about this? Great. Okay, let's take a 15 minute break. And uh, I get up, and you know, one of the operators comes over to me, and he goes, "Hey, man, I got a question." I'm, "Yeah, sure, what?" He goes. So, you know, that thing you were talking about before, so like this, and he starts to ask a question. I like, I go, like, hold on a second. I just said, does anyone have any questions? And everyone said, no. And now you're asking me a question. It's like, not a new question. Like, it's like a question, but we're just, why didn't you ask it there? And he kind of looks over his shoulders and he's like talking in hushed tones like this. He goes, ah, well, I just don't, I don't like talking in front of people, you know, like, says, like but this is like his team. This guy was afraid of public speaking, like most of the people. And he's afraid to be in a group going, I'm not going to make a speech about this. Um, there are a lot of, particularly in in the type A world, there's a, a lot of, now let's call everyone an operator, anybody that puts their life in danger is an operator. There's a lot of operators that can't, you know, say I love you to their kids or say I'm sorry to their wife or husband or whatever because we're all so busy being fucking tough because we need that let's let's be tough we need to we need to we let's focus on being stoic let's not let you know horrific scenes of violence or being around liars most of the day you know so you didn't see anything here nope I didn't do it like like it's you know you're just you start to develop these calluses about life and relationship but you're suppressing a part of you so you know we do in in the no fear program that i do it's not a physical self-defense program and i don't want to be woo woo foo foo here but it's it's an emotional psychological self-defense program at the end of the day these are the things that eat us up inside where and it's is it you know it's funny, I make the joke, I'm not a therapist, I don't play one on TV, but guess what? I have therapists that are clients of mine, not for therapy, because they study my fear management. I've got a guy, I'll end up doing stuff with him one day, we've had him on our No Fear show, named Jeff, Jeff Detesso, he's been a psychologist for 20 years. He, was a Krav, he, he is a Krav Maga instructor who came and did one of our instructor training programs, and, and like we've got close to 200 affiliates around the world, they're all like experienced self-defense practitioners. You gotta ask yourself, like why would they come and do training with me? Why would they do our training course? And and to answer it for you, it's, it's because we're not teaching people how to make a fist or throw a kick. We're not into the complex motor skill. We're into the complex emotional, psychological, physical reality that is almost a bigger threat to your success then whether you can do the splits or not or throw a kick or break a board or shoot a target that's not shooting back at you right you look at qualification everyone everyone does really well when they're shooting on steel you know most people do fairly well when they're shooting at paper what happens to hit ratio timing and threat discrimination decision making when it's force on force using utm or some marking cartridge you go to a shoot house there's more paint on the ceiling and the corner of the wall over the door than there is anywhere else. Like, how does that happen? Like, and I always talk about this. I go, if you, if you to tie this back to the eighties experiment, 1980s, if you go to your shoot house and you look, you'll see 
paint marking above the door. Like, was that the day that, that you guys did force on force with a basketball team and everyone was like eight feet tall? Why are those rounds so high? Why did they miss and why did they miss high? And the answer is when you flinch, your hands come up to protect your head. And so if you got a gun in your hands and somebody makes you flinch and you're pulling the trigger and you're eight, 10 feet away, where does that round end up hitting? Right? Yeah. Two, three, four, five feet above somebody's head. So it's amazing. You could look at an accidental intuitive experiment that I did in the eighties. I can go in and explain to the firearms team why people are missing and some corrective measures they can do. But back full circle to you. Um, all of that, and, and an interesting thing here, man, I could talk for hours on this stuff. I, I was working with a US military team in Europe, and just as I got there, um, they had just been doing a force-on-force -force scenario where I walked in after flying overseas, jet-lagged like crazy, I walked into this, this argument that these two troops were having over an operator who wasn't in the room, who froze, they said, froze inside the fatal funnel after getting hit with uh, two marking cartridge rounds in the neck. And he was coming through the door. The role player was in a center-fed room in the dark, so nobody saw him. But they came in, I always make this joke, like, etch-a-sketch. Remember etch-a-sketch? Mm -hmm. Like, they'd come in, this guy breaks left, this guy breaks right. And when you come in with etch-a-sketch, with like going, you're going left, I'm going right, You what you do is you stymie intuition and instincts. And I'm not going to start talking about tactics here and all that, but when you just think I'm going left, then if maybe your peripheral vision picked up a threat here that you might have might have picked up or somehow made some gesture to. But this guy comes in the door, door opens, he comes in, uh, pauses to break into the room and takes two rounds of uh, simunition rounds in the neck. And it stung him and he flinches back there, freezes. But number two and number three think he's going to keep going. I mean, because in the in the moment you don't really hear those rounds go off, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like a like a real gun. And uh, so number two and number three who think he's going to step, but he hesitates because he just got stung in the throat. They get caught up and they get shot. And then three pushes everyone in the room, and they realize now where the role player is, and everyone shoots towards the role player to engage him. And they were furious that this guy stopped in the door because they're like, like he was an experienced guy. They were doing like cold hits, you know, for stress inoculation scenario training. And they were like, wow, like I didn't think he would freeze in the door. And I walk into this conversation and they haven't trained with me yet. I go like, what are you guys, what are you guys talking about? They tell me the story. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you know anything about the startle flinch response, the body's cross extensive reflex? They're like, well, no, that's why we brought you in. I go, so when you flinch, your body contracts at a violent speed. When you flinch, your ass gets tight. You hold your breath. If you don't have anything in your hands, your hands come up to protect your head. If you've got a gun in your hand, there'll be a micro flinch, but what you'll do is you'll actually squeeze down. This is very important for cops um, because if you've got a flashlight in your hand and you're looking at somebody's license and you look up going, something's off here, and then the guy grabs your gun or throws a punch at you, you're not going to do wax on, wax off. Your body has to cycle through, flinch, cross extensor reflex, locks down. You've got to release that shit and get back. And this is why when I talk to people and I, I try to explain to them why do cops get dragged by cars? 
they don't actually think they can stop a car. The cop doesn't go, you know, I'm stronger than everyone else who's tried this before. I can stop this car. <laughs> it's because their hand is on the car while they're trying to pull this guy out. And all of a sudden he slams the car into drive. It surprises the officer and they go, shit. And they, they, there's a micro flinch that bypasses executive function. And if you're holding onto the door, the seatbelt or the, or the door jam, you locked onto that and that car's going and you can't let go because of the tension. Does this make sense? You're visualizing yeah, yeah, yeah. that, right? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So, so I'm telling these guys in Germany, I go, had he been shot in the neck, he was shot twice in the side of the neck by a real AK-47 or a real rifle. Would he have flinched and held up the doorway? And they all looked at me. I said, no, he would have died right? Because it was like right through the, 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 the brain stem, wherever he got hit, he would have died or he would have dropped right away. And you would have immediately known where the threat was because you would have heard the round auditory. You would have seen one of your colleagues just disappear because he would have just dropped right down. And there wouldn't have been this confusion in the doorway. The confusion was there because it was a soap-based bullet traveling at 400 feet per second that stung like getting beat, bit by a hornet in the throat. So imagine, you know, you're standing there and all of a sudden you, you get like bit in the throat. You're going to go, shit, oh. like, what is that? You, you, you don't continue going on in the room. It's a stimulus that got introduced too quickly. It triggered a flinch. It's a physiological response. It has nothing to do with his training or his courage. And that's what I said to them. And they were like, whoa. And what it is, it actually it gave people like science to, and psychology to consider as opposed to, you know, Billy Bob didn't go through the door. Or he stopped in the fatal funnel. Should we deploy with him now? Do we trust him? Because that was the talk, mm -hmm. right? And, um, but anyways, uh, sorry about going down that, that tangent. No, it, it, it totally makes sense because, uh, yeah. And for anybody who I, I would hope that I, I know this isn't true, but I would hope that every cop has had the advantage of working with simunitions in some capacity. Right. Cause I think anytime you're doing even a live shoot house, but when they're not shooting back at you, you miss that opportunity to understand what does happen when even that little soap soap based bullet comes at you because it changes yeah. it right and and um you know there's different systems out there some that give an electrical shock i think the best is simunitions uh, because you see and understand what happens because even the best of the best I, i'm thinking of a i had jason van camp on the show i don't know if you know who jason is he's the author of a book called uh, deliberate discomfort he's a major he was okay. a major in the special forces and one of the guys in his book tells a story, you know, Special Forces, the Green Berets, they train over and over and over again. And as you're telling that story, I thought of a story from the book where this, uh, I think it was a staff sergeant, was coming around a corner and was confronted by the, uh, you know, the bad guys, quote unquote, in a training scenario and flinched and pulled around the corner and exposed his teammates back to the bullet, right? And of course, his teammate mm -hmm. died in this training scenario as a result of his flinch. And it makes a lot of sense, knowing that story now and hearing you talk about it here, about why he did that. And I think it's just a real disservice to any cop out there if you're not training in those reaction, reactive environments where you get immediate feedback response, you know? Um, are there things we can do? Because, you know, not every department has those things. Not everybody's set up with a shoot house that can handle simunitions. What are things we can do individually to lessen that response so that we don't end up uh, I, I understand that the flinch is, is 
is going to happen. It's guaranteed. But sometimes we can lessen that flinch, I would think, right, through training and through repetitive yeah. uh, introduction of that stress. How do we do that, though, if we don't have that resource? Well, you got to be open-minded to it. There, there, are, there are a lot of defensive tactics, combatives, guys out there who have, you know, uh, uh, their conscious or unconscious bias, and a lot of people who shit on my research, which is unfortunate. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and I'm not going to talk about people or systems because I look at my system as the airbag that you didn't realize needed to be installed in your car and your car in this metaphor is the system that you choose is it is it gracie is it krav if is it boxing is it mma is it an eclectic blend but a lot of people don't like in in that story in the book how deep did that uh um you know when that incident happened how deep did the research and the the uh uh, whatever type of forensics analysis of that go into to discover and talk about the startle flinch and as a rationale for that. And it probably didn't go into it at all. It was just mentioned flinch, you know, but then it was like, okay, you know, so fear does this, or here's a training hazard, or this is, this is acceptable or unacceptable collateral damage. Like it almost gets swept under the rug because people don't understand it. So to answer your question, directly um if you don't understand that the flinch is an asset that it's when your conscious awareness is compromised your body's subconscious radar tries to do something to move you out of danger it's fucking brilliant i'm not talking about the spear here i'm talking about the body the human body we have this intuitive radar that says look out and that look out is a startle flinch and and if it's if we feel that it's a, a an imminent immediate danger we turn away from it our hands come up if we feel there's time and space our hands come up to protect our head and then push away um so i discovered this in the 80s and figured out a way to weaponize it by doing these Pavlovian drills. A lot of these drills, you ask me, how can officers learn more about it? You won't learn anything about it if you have a closed mind. I invite you all to read the article I wrote for Caliber Press on the Brian Dalton attempted murder. Officer Dalton was stabbed four times in the neck uh, by a screwdriver from some obviously uh, crazy uh, bad guy uh, who attacked him on a vehicle stop. And Dalton was able to uh, finally get to his weapon and and terminate the threat. But I write this article and I do a demo. You could watch it and read it. Just do. Uh, I'll send you the link. You can post it in show notes. But it's uh, if you want to Google it, it's Brian Dalton, Tony Blauer, Caliber Press. You'll see it. The title of the article is Violence Doesn't Care What Martial Art You Study. Right? So I, I love that. And I, and I say that and guess what? People hate that because they think I'm insulting them. I know I'm just explaining, hey, coronavirus doesn't care. The tornado doesn't care. Violence doesn't care. Are you prepared? And if it hits you, what are you going to do? And when it hits us, it's emotional, psychological, physical. So if you want to get good at weathering and converting the flinch, it starts phase one. Accept that it's there. Embrace it. Most people don't. They think that flinching is cowardly or effeminate looking. Right. So if you turn away from danger and your hands come up, you look like a pussy. So you got to get over that and realize that, you know, 
anybody who goes through a windshield in a car accident because they're not wearing their seatbelt has trauma on their hands and their forearms. Their startle flinch tried to protect the head going through the window. That's how fast this is. You look at any knife attack where somebody was attacked from the front, there's always trauma on the hands and the forearm. Forensics experts say, oh, those are defensive wounds. They're, I mean, this is nitpicking and semantics, but they're not defensive wounds. They're startle flinch wounds, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and again, this is semantics. We, you know, uh, same thing, you know, you see gunshot wounds, hands, forearms. The startle flinch is that accurate that it will come up and actually try to stop the bullet even though it can't see it. And and I, like I'll look at that, and I'll go, how amazing is that, you know, uh, that it does that. And that's the the good news. It's that fast and that accurate because it's that it's a black box part of our survival system. So that's part two. Part one is go, am I open minded enough to explore this? Part two is holy shit, this is hardwired in me, and look how accurate it is. Now, can I control? this movement. Well, that's Pavlovian or classical conditioning. Those are the drills that I put together over decades. And there's only three or four fundamental drills, finger splayed, finger splayed outside 90 front towards enemy, how to align your body into this position. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of free resources online. There's tons of videos of me demoing that. Um, but if you wanted to take it to the next level, it's, it's literally like, you know, you know the expression, it's as easy as riding a bike? Sure, yeah. Learning how to ride a bike. Well, learning how to ride a bike isn't that easy until you do it, and then you get it. But riding a bike and learning how to run are completely different, although they're both forms of transportation. Learning how to run is accelerated walking, right? You know, and so accelerated walking is like, is like I've now progressed from crawling really quickly, and now I'm going to stand up and walk. So learning the spear system, because it's it's all hardwired in you, and people are going to think I'm full of shit here. I have we use videos in our courses of of, of police officers in our classes who took a four hour class at a tactical training conference, not even an instructor class, not even part of their 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 policy or their DT program. And we've got dashboard videos of guys dropping combative suspects who went through four hours. Because the when, when you see it, you go, oh my God, this is so easy. It's because your body's already done it so many times, it's hardwired in it. So to answer your question, honestly, I could say, since I'm the CEO of Blower Tactical and and the uh, uh, you know the the I own the IP on this and blah, I could say, well, the only way to learn it is to sign up for our lifetime membership, where <laughs> you know sign here. I go, hey, read the Brian Dalton article and Google our stuff online and just watch some videos and start playing. If you really want to learn it, there are obviously. We've got 44 videos online that we got. We got videos on weapon handling through the system, on gunfighting, multiple assailants, all with this core of I need to manage my fear and manage how my fear is going to move my body. So that's why we say don't confuse tactical with technical. We, we tactical is embracing what our body wants to do instinctively when we're in danger, and so the the actual system, the highest level of system, is when we finally get our cognitive brain to respect and integrate what our reptilian brain wants to do. And so we start off in a highly volatile, violent situation with an expression until you're emotionally and psychologically in control of yourself and physically dominating your threat, 
don't go to the complex motor skill. That's where cops get punched in the face and lose their gun. They go, you're under arrest. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Then they go to, you know, two o'clock and their hands go down and their eyes go down and secure, you know, to go into some cuffing ritual and boom, the guy sucker punches them or grabs them or tackles them. So we tell people in a high stress situation or in during sudden violence, stay primal gross motor, get control of yourself, get control of the threat, then transition to your complex motor skills. That takes 25 seconds to say that could happen in a second and a half. Interesting stuff. We'll make sure we put the, the article you mentioned and some of the other stuff into your show notes so people can find that you know easily and just go to your episode at thesquadroom.net. I want to end with a question. I didn't prep you for this question, but I think you're going to answer it just fine. I'm sure you've heard this before. I'm kind of scared. I'm a no. little bit nervous. It's, uh, it's just, you know, there's a, there's a quote I use on the show a lot, and it's a call to action I use called Be the One. And I often ask the audience to be the one. And it comes from a Heraclitus quote from, you know, way back in the day. And uh, my audience has heard it many times, but I always repeat it for the guests, and I want to get your opinion of it. But the quote is, out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets. Nine are the real fighters, and we are lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one, one is a true warrior, and he will be the one to bring the others back. And so I often implore the audience to be the one, whatever it is, in their community, in their family, in their church, at their department, on that call for service. But I want to ask you, Tony Blauer, what does it mean to you to be the one? Yeah, it's that's actually one of my favorite quotes, and and uh, um, have been reading it and thinking about it for decades now, and it it serendipitously ties to what we were talking about right at the beginning and and in the middle, where to self actualize, to be the best version of yourself, you need self awareness. To make good decisions in life, you need to be able to be a critical thinker. To make good decisions and be a leader you need to manage fear. And so being the one is about using fear as fuel because there's no way to, there's no station you get in life where you go, I have no fear anymore. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, and it may not be fear about the battle that you stress inoculated to. It might be fear of, because you know you're the one, fear of are the nine gonna be okay? Right. Fear of, you know, I kind of like was fond of those 80. You know, one of them was my kid or one of them was my nephew or one of them was my best friend's son or daughter. So to me, the be, be the one is always am I willing to give up who I am today to become who I could be tomorrow? And to do that, I can't be scared. And and I can't if I don't change my relationship with fear. That's the joke I made in the beginning. Most people think of fear as as cowardly or unprepared or lack of courage and uh, and i remind everybody about about my expression you can't be brave if you're not afraid and if you believe that then suddenly you go you know what every time i'm afraid that gives me that's a cue and a clue to do some research on the fact that some stimulus was introduced to my life where i'm not stress inoculated for that what is that is it worth researching it because if you do the research right i get a fear spike someone says hey did you know this and i go and that would go wow like i held my breath like that gave me a little fear spike there 
and if I can ask my quote, why did that happen? Do I Google this? Do I consult a subject matter expert? Do I need to go swim with sharks, jump out of an airplane? What do you like? What do you have to do to get over this? And I'm not cavalier about this. There's some people that are the outliers, the general, the, like we don't have to go jump off cliffs to, to manage fear. Is our fear, and I tell people, practice courage. Be the one is the person that practices mm -hmm. courage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. See, I, I, I knew you'd have right. a great, I knew you'd have a great answer for that question, and that's a, a fantastic spot to end on. Tony, where can people more, find out more about your classes, uh, the work you're doing, the Blower, the Spear System, and Blower Tactical? Cool. Uh, so, so many things changed with uh, the lockdown and not sure when this will actually be released, but we've got uh, a bunch of new websites. So my main website is Blauer Spear, B-L-A-U-E-R, Spear, S-P-E-A-R. And then we just launched a new one uh, for kind of what we're all going through. It has all my virtual and digital assets where people can access me remotely. Um, and that's on nofearnow.com, spelled K-N-O-W-F-E-A-R, now N-O-W. And uh, so we're doing a lot more uh, coaching and virtual. And we just did um, six hours for, we were talking about how great the Australians were. I just did a six-hour Skype call with an Australian agency. I mean, like six hours is crazy, right? Just uh, <laughs> That's a long Zoom call. <laughs> Yeah, it went, it went by so fast. Uh, you know, we, we covered, uh, you know, their organization is, is, is they've got spear, they've got high gear. And so this is all their trainers. And we were, we were working on um, um, uh, emotional use of force, which is a new concept, presumed compliance. Uh, you know, this mentoring recruits in fear and managing fear, how to do realistic scenario-based training and so on and so forth. So we're doing a lot of stuff that, you know, to, to go back to what you asked earlier, is how do, how do people get better at this? How do they mitigate this? You, you got to do the research. When you understand it, you go, wow, you know, I can do this. Awesome. We'll put all the links for that again in the show notes, like I mentioned earlier, so people can go to the squadroom.net and find your episode if they are uh, if they don't remember that off the top of their head. Tony, thanks for being with us. Thanks for uh, leading the charge and helping us develop a, uh, uh, that response to fear in the appropriate way. Really enjoy getting to talk with you anytime I can and, and following you on socials and everything you're doing out there. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. You too. Stay safe. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode with Tony. If you like what you heard today and you want to know how you can support the show, there's a few ways you can do that. First off is to consider leave a re leaving a review on the podcast player of your choice. Please also leave a comment with your re your review so that we can learn more about what it is you like or dislike about the show. Second, share this episode or any other episode you, uh, that you've liked with someone you love or that you care about who needs to hear something that's shared on these, on these episodes. You can go to thesquadroom.net and share any episode uh, from any podcast player there. Also, some great companies support the show and support this podcast, and please support them. You can go to thesquadroom.net forward slash support, and you'll see exclusive deals from... Hard to Kill Fitness, Signature Coins, On It, Ranger Up, Hardhead Veterans, and Audible. And of course, join our Facebook group and follow me on Instagram. Special thanks to today's sponsor, Hard to Kill Fitness. If you're looking for effective and challenging at-home workout programs that get you results and get you back in shape, check them out at hardtokillfitness.co. If you're shopping at Ranger Up, don't forget to use the coupon code THESQUADROOM to get 10% off your order. 
And if you're looking for the best fitting ballistic helmet that exceeds NIJ standards and won't break your bank account, check out hardheadveterans.com and use the coupon code SQUADROOM to get $20 off your helmet. To keep up to date and uh, on everything that's going on with the show and the stuff that's coming out, some of my special events, make sure that you get signed up for our mailing list at thesquadroom.net. And of course, keep an eye on Instagram. All right, until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.